0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us in studio USU Assistant Professor of Political Science Jeannie Johnson. Uh, She's out with a new book. Um, It uh, is uh, called The Marines, Counterinsurgency Strategic Culture. Uh, She explores the ideals, culture, peculiar mindset, and history of the U.S. Marine Corps uh, through the Iraq War. She's researched lessons learned on the battlefield, particularly the core strategy of counterinsurgency. The Art of Protecting a Population from Terrorists and Guerrillas. The subtitle of the book is Intriguing, Lessons Learned and Lost in America's Wars. And uh, Professor Johnson uh, studies uh, culture, right? And that's, uh, we'll get into this, but that's perhaps a reason why lessons are lost and have to continually be uh, relearned. Um, uh, Jeannie Johnson has a background in the CIA, I believe, right? Um, and now in uh, academia. So, uh, Jeannie Johnson, welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate you uh, taking some time to to be with us. Always uh, great to see you. Uh, So your father was in the military?
1: He was. He was a colonel in the U.S. Army for 38 years, six days. Wait, six months, four days. We, (laughs) We all have memorized as children. So a big part of his life. And that meant that military lore, legend, and values permeated our growing up years.
0: And so that that's probably had an effect on where you went with your career path.
1: It did, although he gives me a really bad time that somehow that ended up with the Marine Corps, right, yeah. instead of the Army. He's <laughs> convinced that it's the dress blues, <laughs> and I will neither confirm nor deny uh, whether that's true so when i first started my research i was looking at u.s military culture writ large and this is a great topic on the eve of the fourth of july in salute to our veterans and thinking about uh, aspects of our country that make us strong and things that we could do better as well and so as i started into my research um, it became clear to me that the different services, specifically our two ground force services, the Army and the Marine Corps, had really distinct ways of fighting counterinsurgency. And of course, while I'm doing my research, we're in the thick of things in both Iraq and Afghanistan. So I started my research in 2005, 2006, and then did it full time through 2007, 2008, and um, I read a book called The Village by Bing West that focused on something that you and I are going to talk about today, the CAP program, the Combined Action Platoon Program in Vietnam. This was a Marine-only program, and it was completely distinct from the way that Westmoreland was fighting the rest of the Vietnam War.
0: General Westmoreland was the head of the whole Right. forces. He was the top general. Right? He was the top yeah.
1: general. Not only that, well, so he was the top general of the U.S. Army, but but all Marines assigned to the Vietnam War also came under his command. So uh, Marine commanders on the side in I Corps, which was the area where they were located, got permission to try this experiment called the Combined Action Platoon Program. And we'll talk about the details of that, but the bottom line is it was working, working, meaning that the Viet Cong were being persuaded to disappear from those areas, that the Marines had really good relationships with the villagers in those areas. So they were becoming pacified. They were um, sort of standing back up on their feet again, getting out of the conflict throws that were going on elsewhere in Vietnam. And could have been a blueprint that worked for the whole of Vietnam, but ran so counter to the way that we as Americans prefer to fight wars that the cap for many, many years came under the rubric Lessons Lost.
0: Mm. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, i trying to read my own handwriting here. So Colin Gray? Gray. Gray. Colin mm-hmm. Gray. Here's a quote from your book. American strategic culture simply did not register the unwanted Vietnam experience. Right. I guess, so that's talking right. about our culture, right? That's right. That, that that's had an effect on us not mm-hmm. registering the lessons.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Vietnam was shocking to the American psyche because it was n- not a victory. And, um, and it was messy and it had torn at our national soul, it had divided the nation. Um, the images coming back from the Vietnam theater were were disturbing to the population. Uh, the veterans coming back had a hard time reintegrating and were not treated well by the population. So it was a traumatic event on multiple levels, and the U.S. military largely wanted to wash its hands of it and move forward. And so, therefore... Some of the, the things that we had been doing well, some of the things that had worked, some of the things that were worth our attention and worth learning got washed out with the whole of the war. And we, again, sort of reset our sights on conventional conflicts of the future, as we have after nearly every irregular conflict and in so doing, lost the opportunity to really learn from Vietnam. Mm.
0: So the phrase you hear, I th- uh, thought we're supposed to be winning hearts and minds, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and there's a quote uh, mm-hmm. somewhere there. Uh, somebody asked General Westmoreland, you're essentially giving the peasants uh, three options. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that. And and none of them good. And, and it, uh, the, the person you were quoting, or, or maybe it was you, it was saying that... Um, right there you know we're essentially losing the war right there
1: so the the vietnamese were just caught in a terrible situation they um they did not have a government that they felt particularly attached to in the south vietnamese government they um had a military that often mistreated the locals itself And then they have a U.S. military sweeping through that knows very little about the country, very little about why this war is raging in the first place. And the average Vietnamese villager just wants to keep his or her head down and survive the conflict. They don't have very many good options. So... When these Marine squads were assigned to the villages, there were 14 Marines and a Navy corpsman, and they were all enlisted. There were no officers in these squads, which is highly unusual, if you can imagine that today. So they would be assigned to a village and told that they could not exceed the geographic boundaries of the village, even if the Viet Cong, who was the insurgent force we were fighting at the time— Came into the village and attacked and sort of then ran out. Uh, the Marines were not to pursue them. Now, that may sound kind of crazy, but it's actually really wise counterinsurgency advice because as we saw in other areas of Vietnam and then saw later in Iraq and Afghanistan, as soon as U S forces would chase the insurgents out of the village, a different band of insurgents would come in behind them and punish any villagers who had been cooperating with U S forces and punishment often meant death. Right. And so by, by really protecting that village and, and, and staying within its boundaries, you begin to gradually win over the villagers who are living there. And, um, you know, this hearts and minds business is a tricky thing. Um, it, it it can be very successful, and and in some cases, maybe it shouldn't be. So let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, you probably also read a quote later in the book by a Marine I was interviewing who said, um, you want to hear the worst thing I did in Vietnam? Now, that gives you pause, mm-hmm. right? I've done mm-hmm. a lot of interviews with Vietnam veterans, and to have someone say, do you want to hear the worst thing I did in Vietnam, you, you, it takes you takes you back a little. And so I just stayed quiet, and he said... The worst thing I did in Vietnam was winning hearts and minds. Mm. It's not the people I killed who keep me up at night. It's the people who committed to us. It's the people we won over and then we left. And they were the ones hanging off the helicopters and trying to scale the embassy walls. They're the ones who keep me up at night. Mm -hmm. And that really... uh, you know, that really struck me as such a powerful concept. So one of the great limitations that our military forces have, they are absolutely capable of winning hearts and minds. If you do a careful study of Iraq and Afghanistan, what you find is that um, after some of the initial uh, war push settled down, And uh, especially in Iraq, once we started duplicating some of the better lessons of the CAP program from Vietnam and doing a better job of reaching out to the population, you can win over sectors of the population. But as a military force, you don't get to decide whether you're going to stay or whether you leave. That's a presidential decision. And it's utterly out of your hands. So you may win people over by convincing them that you will stay until the job is done and believe that sincerely in your own heart, but you don't get to make that call. And so you may be removed out of the situation um, in ways that harm, dramatically harm, the populations who sided with you. So... The hearts and minds business is an interesting concept, you know. We think that's the best idea and the right thing to do when our military forces are deployed abroad, but it's only the right thing to do if you are willing to fully keep the commitments you make to them on the ground. And again, that's a civilian political decision, not one that the military gets to make.
0: And most often... Uh, you know, the decision will be made at some point to pull out, right? So, right. Uh, so then, uh, there you said there's some good lessons learned, mm-hmm. perhaps not hearts and minds, but mm-hmm. with the CAP program. These are mm-hmm. 14 enlisted Marines and one Navy corpsman right. who would take up residence in a village, right, essentially protect that village, right, uh, uh, including from their own forces, yeah, in some cases, <laughs> right,
1: right. Um, So times when the Marines won the hearts of their villagers, perhaps most dramatically, were times when they defended the villagers in unexpected circumstances. So two particular stories that are just terrific will illustrate the point. One is Tim Duffy, who remains one of my heroes, who was a radio man in a Cap village. And he and two of his much larger Marine buddies – Uh, went down in the morning to uh, buy Cokes, as they always did. And as they got closer to the hut where they would buy Cokes, they saw the young daughter of the couple who ran the shop uh, outside crying. And although they didn't speak much Vietnamese, uh, her gestures indicated to them that there were men inside who had – been molesting her and she was sobbing and upset and these marines who in their hearts had come to knit together with the village and cared about these villagers and cared about her were on fire and stepped into the hut to find that it was south vietnamese officers who had done this to her and um they looked at the parents which is remarkable by itself to defer to them on how the parents wanted the situation handled. And the parents indicated, we want these guys out of here. And so these three raggedy Marines, because living in the bush that long, they did not exactly look squared away. You know, their their uniforms weren't pressed and clean. They, they looked like they'd been living in the bush for a long time, uh, turned to the South Vietnamese officers and told them to leave. And uh, there were seven officers. And they decided not to leave. And so the two Marines who were with Tim knocked out one of the officers and then invited them again to leave. And at this point, they dragged their fellow officer and got out of town. That incident showing that they were willing to stand up to any force, whether that was the VC or whether that was the South Vietnam army that was supposed to be the army protecting and defending these villagers, that if anyone came in to mess with the village, the Marines were going to defend them. That won the village over far more than any civic action project or school built or uh, any other kind of goodwill offering that had been done up to that point. And um, Trust Israel, uh, that's his name, who is another Cap Marine, has a similar story, but this time it was the U.S. Army rolling through. And a U.S. Army truck was barreling down the road at way too high a speed and yelling offensive things at the villagers. And uh, Truss stepped out of the jungle into the road and leveled his rifle at them. And, you know, they couldn't imagine that this Marine was really going to fire. And Trust was able to convince him that he was just crazy enough to do exactly that Mm -hmm. and told him to turn around and get out of his village. So moments like that uh, convinced the villagers that the Marines were genuinely on their side. And this has to be contrast with um, Marines who were just as earnestly trying to do the right thing for the country where they were sent um, in force, of the Banana Wars era. So the Banana Wars are early turn-of-the-century, low-level conflicts in places like Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua... And Marines were sent there because if the Army was sent to these places, it was considered back then to be an act of war. But if Marines were sent, then it was just a skirmish. Mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. the Marines would get sent to do this uh, completely on their own and with very limited experience. And there you see a pattern that the U.S. has recreated over and over again. So this gets at your question of lessons lost or lessons understudied. And that is, as the Marines um, earnestly tried to build up these countries to be highly functioning, efficient, with better infrastructure and better medical care, they did all of those things, but they wanted to do them efficiently. So they did them with very limited local involvement. Um, Marines would get frustrated with how slow things were moving, so they just scoop it up and do it themselves. And then, in order to keep insurgency at bay, they also established a national military in in sometimes unprecedented ways uh, in these countries, and had that national military be loyal primarily to the central government. And what that meant was that all of these good things that the Marines were attempting to put in motion, better economy, newly paved roads, uh, telegraph lines stretched all over the country, and a centralized power structure that paid very little attention to regional or municipal local authorities, um, they actually laid perfect groundwork for dictatorships once they left. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, was inadvertent and unintentional, but became a pattern. So, you know, Haiti, you have dictators rise and then quickly fall apart. And most of the advances that the Marines had made by way of infrastructure were very quickly reversed um, by just inattention and lack of funding and that sort of thing. In the Dominican Republic, you get Trujillo. Who reigns as a dictator for a long, long time in Nicaragua? You get the Somozas who reign as dictators, and all of these made their way up through the system that the Marines had created. So, here again is where the CAP program does the reverse of that by empowering local people to defend themselves. Um, and protect themselves against whatever force comes their direction, and in so doing, doesn't in the same way pave the way for a dictator to just sort of scoop up the infrastructure that has been left behind and reign for a really long time. Now, that wasn't a conscious decision on the part of cat marines, so that's something I call in my book uh, a positive blind spot, something we did right but we didn't even really recognize what we were doing Mm -hmm. at the time. So also becomes a lesson lost because it's not a lesson recognized of, Hey, here's another way to do this so that we don't recreate this pattern of setting up a perfect stage for dictators before we leave. And again, we're doing it in the name of efficiency and order and bringing good things to as many people as we can, better medical care, better transportation but because it's done with limited local involvement and because it's done over the heads or through local power brokers, meaning you know plowing them over, um, then, then we leave behind just a highly centralized structure that's ripe for the picking from a would-be dictator.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I have many questions uh, uh, here, um, including we'll treat this as we come back, come back to this central question of, why do we keep losing these lessons? Mm-hmm. That's what you're trying to right. counteract right. here, right? Right. Um, and also, um, learning the culture of the place as so, well. This is what CAP was was doing and and, and doing a good job of because right. and there are some examples of. Uh, of, uh, of that, including uh, you don't offer a gift with just one hand, right? That's something that the <laughs> Tim Duffy and the others learned. We'll talk about those. We're, we're talking with uh, Jeannie Johnson. Her new book is The Marines' Counterinsurgency and uh, Strategic Culture, Lessons Learned and Lost in uh, America's uh, Wars. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Anderson Seed and Garden, offering spring decor, garden supplies, and landscaping ideas. Located at 69 West Center Street in Logan. Information at AndersonSeedandGarden.com and on Facebook. This week on Undisciplined, we're talking about how things start. First, we'll be joined by a physical scientist who has uncovered a secret about how water begins to freeze. Next, we'll chat with a health scientist who will tell us about how to start a revolution in healthy behaviors. The theoretical chemist and the epidemiologist, that's Undisciplined, Friday at 2.
1: We Gotta Get Out of This Place by the Animals was the number one song for soldiers in Vietnam. It's played at every Vietnam Vets reunion. It just captured that moment in their lives when staying alive was the most important thing. The music of the Vietnam War. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason.
0: Tomorrow morning at 4 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, a new book out from Jeannie Johnson. She is assistant professor of political science at Utah State University. Um, and that book is The Marines, Counterinsurgency and Strategic Culture. The subtitle is Lessons Learned and Lost in America's... Uh, wars, so Jeanne Johnson, you're you're studying uh, this this idea of counterinsurgency mm-hmm. and this fascinating idea of lessons that we learn
1: mm-hmm.
0: but then lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you choose the Marines
1: mm-hmm. to study? So, uh, as I was doing my initial research, I came across the book I mentioned before, The Village by Bing West, that described the CAP program. And the CAP program was so different than anything that I had come across yet in studying our nation's counterinsurgency history and so effective. And um, it really completely captured my attention. And I wanted to better understand the service, being the U.S. Marine Corps, that produced a program like this. What would inspire a program like this? Um, living in the villages, getting to know the people, defending just the boundaries of those villages, and then using something like an ink blot system to continue to grow that pacification effort out as you grow the squads placed in these different villages. I also found in talking with CAP Marines that uh, across Vietnam veterans, they had Um, striking pride in their service. They knew they had done good things on the ground in Vietnam. And for the young men who were sucked into that conflict in the 60s and early 70s, there were very few who got to come home really feeling that way. You know, they were caught in a maelstrom of, of a really ugly war. And so I was struck by the pride that the Cat Marines had in their service and their own recognition of the good things they had done, they continue to go back to Vietnam. Mm. So every year they send a small delegation with money that they have raised across the year to go continue to do projects for the villages that they that they lived in. And they keep in contact with these villagers, which is striking all by itself. So just absolutely fell in love with that program. And then um, as I began to study the Marines, it's just impossible not to fall in love with them as well. They love themselves a great deal, and it is charming, and it's a lot of fun. They are colorful, and uh, I always tell them they've given me 10 study years of entertainment Hmm. studying the United States Marine Corps. Um, Some of the people I most admire – uh, who walk the earth are, are drawn from that service. And so uh, I really think the world of them. The Marine Corps tends to have members um, who fall on, on the extremes of the spectrum. Uh, so I also tease them that, you know, some of them are, I I just really hold in the highest possible esteem, and others uh, I'd like to kill with my own bare hands. So um, they're, you know, they, they range the spectrum, but uh, are a remarkable group with an intense uh, sort of sense of court esprit and and, and brotherhood. And brotherhood's a funny word for it because, as you know, there are women in the Marine Corps as well, but they see themselves as – the, the proud and the fewer, you know, we are not just the proud, the few, we are the fewer and even prouder. And so their intensity matches that of their brethren. So it's hard not to just get uh, really um, swept up in their remarkable love for each other and for their service and find that intriguing all by itself.
0: I want to uh, talk about a, uh, a photograph here on Tim Duffy's site. Right, mm-hmm. This is his site about, mm-hmm. about the CAP program um it's a school teacher she's a young woman and uh she looks wary she looks guarded she does um so i wonder if you tell us why
1: absolutely so this young woman is a school teacher in an area that did not have a cap program yet fully established And she has uh, a number of U.S. military personnel who have swept in and are offering textbooks for her school, which should make her excited. She should be happy about that. She's getting supplies for her school. But instead, as you mentioned, her face looks really guarded and worried. And the reason she looks that way is she has no idea what the retribution is going to be For having accepted any kind of help from U.S. forces, she knows they're going to leave and she will be left standing there to explain why she was willing to accept their help if someone who wants to punish her sweeps into the village, kind of like um, the the sort of poor counterinsurgency practice that we talked about earlier of chasing the insurgents out of the village and then another group of them come in behind you and punish village birds who had been cooperating. That's what she's worrying about. So the CAP Marines did do a lot of civic action, but they did it sort of the, you know, Boy Scout neighborly type of civic action. They didn't, um, they once in a while would do things like build a school but they did it in complete cooperation with the villagers. And so they didn't have villagers with looks on their faces like this one, because if the villagers didn't want something, it didn't happen. And they knew that the CAP unit was there to stay for just as long as U.S. forces were in Vietnam. And and that is one of the points of pride that CAP units have even when they were fully wiped out, which some of them were, some of them were overrun by either North Vietnamese regular forces or by Viet Cong forces. And all members of the squad were killed or only one or two were left alive. Within 24 hours, another CAP unit will have taken their place. So school teachers, um, like her knew at least that there were going to be 14 Marines at all times in their vicinity doing their best to defend the village.
0: Mm -hmm. Tim Duffy uh, on the site, he talks about how they they, uh, worked hard and, of necessity, learned the culture.
1: That's exactly right. And I made reference
0: before the break. Uh, I was reading uh, through this and I before he explained it I uh, you know I was clueless.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: don't offer a gift with just one hand.
1: <laughs> yeah, so they have to learn most all of those things by trial and error. Yeah. So um one of our patterns as Americans is and specifically the American security community is that while we are heavily involved in a counterinsurgency or an irregular war and we'd start to sort of get mired into it, um, we figure out, wow, we we probably ought to learn the way of life of these people that we're trying to collaborate with in order to do a better job of collaborating with them. So we start to invest in cultural training. And in Vietnam, you know, there were a lot of civic action efforts to supply a degree of cultural training, mainly to those who were going out and doing projects. There was not cultural training offered to regular U.S. military forces. The CAP Marines got a touch of that. It was two weeks' worth at a CAP school before they went into their villages, but still it was very, very limited. Um, we ended up doing a much better job of this before sending forces into Iraq and Afghanistan. Not initially. Um, by about two years in, three years in, we were doing a better job of this. But our pattern is... We ramp that up while we're fighting an irregular war, and then as soon as that war is done, we get rid of our cultural competence training. And I can tell you that is happening right now in front of us. So tick, 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 one by one, excellent cross-cultural competence courses, um, whether these are hosted by the Navy SEALs or by the Marine Corps or by other institutions, the Army, they are being cut of their funding one after the other. And the idea is, well, this is This is not really the kind of knowledge or the skill base that we would need to find a conventional war. And because we're focused now on conventional foes like Russia and China and Iran, um, then culture won't be as important, which is, of course, just um, a complete misunderstanding of the purpose of investing in uh, cultural know-how. So even if we were to go to war, um, heaven forbid, with one of those other great powers, the the strongest likelihood is that we would not be fighting that war on our homeland or on theirs. We would probably be fighting it across some unfortunate third-party population who just got stuck in the middle of a great power fight. And in that circumstance, um, the country that has invested in – cross-cultural competence, we call it, the ability to land in a new place and ask the right questions, to pause before judgment, to understand this group of people and their ways of life and their ways of thinking. The country that has invested most thoroughly in that skill set will most quickly build collaboration with the host population on the ground, and they will have the advantage in that fight. And so as absolutely obvious and commonsensical as that may be, it falls outside the logic of our military and intelligence institutions. And we fail on this point in every round Mm. and have done so across the last 100 years of combat Mm. history.
0: So this is so consistent Mm -hmm. (laughs) and maddening, right? Especially someone like you trying to preach this. Right. So why? Why do we keep losing these lessons?
1: Um, That particular lesson we lose uh, for two reasons. The first is that Americans tend to be possessed of the idea that um, there's a natural progression for humankind leading toward democracy, that people are naturally drawn toward democracy and the ability to have control over their own political and economic lives. And this is a very compelling idea, and there's a lot of evidence to support it. But what it means is that the thought is, well, whatever culture they practiced before is the one they mostly want to get rid of. And we are bringing the enlightenment of um, individualism and control of your own life and your government. And so since these ideas are so attractive and since they are the ideas toward which all humans are inclined anyway, then we don't really need to get to know much about where they are right now because we're offering where they want to go. And all we have to do is help sort of clear the garden path. So we'll get rid of their dictators and their faulty institutions and kind of clear away the debris and the obstacles. And then people will be naturally drawn toward the way of life um, that is largely American. And so with that idea in mind, it's only when we experience sharp failure, as we did uh for a long, long time in Iraq, and as we continue to experience in, Ar- in Afghanistan, that we take a step back and think, hmm, well, on their way to this eventual destination – maybe we will have to learn a thing or two about the way they operate right now in order to help get them there. And so there's this investment in culture. Um, as Americans, we pride ourselves on leaning forward, on forward progress, forward problem solving. Uh, Colin Gray, the eminent scholar that you quoted earlier accuses the U S of both being a cultural and a historic meaning we don't invest in understanding other people's cultures, but we also don't invest in understanding theirs or our own history. So, so we don't realize that we are repeating a pattern over and over again. And as a forward leaning problem solving people, um, skills that served very well on the frontier and continue to serve very well in regular American life, we don't put a lot of stock in looking back. And for us, many of the cultural moors that we see on the ground in foreign areas, uh, they are regarded as uh, a backward step instead of uh, something that's working well for the people who live there they're looked at as a sort of primitive step on the way to eventual democracy and therefore not really worth our time and understanding very clearly
0: mm. yeah it's, it's resonating <laughs> uh, how do you uh, you, you quote uh, Sun Tzu right? right? know thyself and know thy enemy yeah. yep. and we're not knowing ourselves right so how can we do better
1: well uh you just keep working at it so this is this is the main topic that i address and hats off to the institutions that invite that kind of education into their spaces so i very recently um gave a talk on this um in in maryland to a group that represents a lot of the intelligence community Um, i continue to work with our intelligence community writ large on this particular question and am in the process of writing an article that was requested by the marine corps on this precise issue that they're going to put into the curriculum that is pushed out to all officers so, there is a band of folks who are who are you know sort of the scholars of the security community who understand that this is a problem and continue to seek um, ways to keep the awareness alive that we can't lose cultural competence that we need to get to know ourselves better so one of the things I wrote into the article that will go out to these Marine Corps officers is. In today's 21st century conflicts, Russia, Iran, China are investing heavily in understanding U.S. habits of mind and U.S. habits of practice, uh, and they are coming at us in indirect ways to uh, to revise the status quo on the world stage to undermine. US leadership in some areas and supplant it. Um, As we know, the Russians have invested substantially in just creating social and political chaos in the United States in order to weaken us internally through disinformation campaigns. So when you look at that, None of that can be accomplished by our adversaries unless they know us really well. They know which buttons to push. They know areas where we are militarily strong and where we are militarily vulnerable. They know uh, that we don't have, for instance, a clear script for action on how to respond to cyber attacks. We're in a little bit of disarray on on that front. So they they study us intently. If we are going to respond effectively. We better know ourselves as well as they know us and know the vulnerabilities that we are offering up to them. And one of our vulnerabilities is they know that we do not invest in understanding the cultures of other places at the level that they do. So their uh, information campaigns that they are pushing out, Iran is pushing these out regionally in its own region. Russia has done it in its border region. They are getting to know these places in a depth that far outclasses what the United States can bring to the table. And that is a significant advantage to them. So they are playing to our weaknesses. If that message can get through that cultural competence is not just an insurgency or a counterinsurgency skill set it's a skill set in um, maintaining our position on the world stage encountering some of the more pernicious advances of our competitors if that message can get through, then I think you will see a U.S. military that is more consistently willing to invest in cross-cultural competence.
0: Mm-hmm. By the way, one of the uh, an article here, uh, you describe uh, cultural competencies training for that. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's effective. You say mm-hmm. this kind of thing is being mm-hmm. defunded now. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe tell us about this uh, Navy SEAL training class.
1: Right. Yeah, it's the most excellent one I've seen. So absolutely hats off to those who put it together. I just got to be a happy observer to this training. It's absolutely wonderful. So they take uh, a brand new um, group of uh, Navy SEALs. They They haven't completed all of their training yet. So this is in their training pipeline. So they haven't been given their tridents yet. And um, they plot them in this village. So they've built up a village, and with very little instruction, and tell them basically to go make friends with the villagers and figure out how to get their cooperation. And every house in the village represents a different culture. So the seals have to try a different approach every house they come to, and they're given no interpreters. And as you might imagine, that first day is just an utter disaster. (laughs) And it's meant to be, right? It's meant to be, all right, what what do you think the skills are that you would need to navigate this? Clearly, we can't just teach you about one region of the world or one particular culture, because you've got six of them out there to navigate. And that is also uh, a more realistic parallel to the places where they will be deployed, because often, even if you take a place like Afghanistan, you may be working with a Pashtun tribe uh, and then switch over and work with the Tajiks or uh, another group inside Af- Afghanistan and find a completely different local culture inside the country. So you can't just learn one script for action in a place where you'll be deployed. The more important thing is to learn a skill set that allows you to navigate any new cultural terrain, to ask the right questions, have the right restraint and pauses, um, the unpacking skills when something is perplexing to you. And so one of the skills, for instance, that we work on uh, in that course is uh, to take the mentality that we possess as Americans of being problem solvers, which is terrific mentality, right? It got us to the moon. Um, take that mentality and instead put the emphasis on building dignity. So instead of going into the village and saying, I'm here to solve all of your problems. What are your problems? And please let me solve them, right? Which tends to be the way we approach um, a village wherever our military forces are deployed. To to be able to understand what is honorable behavior in this village, what enhances dignity, and uh, if you want the cooperation of the head of the village, how are you going to be an an asset to the dignity of the village instead of undermining uh, him perhaps or her by you know sort of fixing everything and showing that their their leader was not worth much cuz he didn't get anything done and now you're coming in and swooping in and doing it all for them so so switching some mindsets so go away from problem solver focus on dignity don't worry about doing gigantic civic action do humbler Neighborly sorts of things that build relationships instead of fixing material structures. So the emphasis is on the relationship instead of on the um, mission accomplished or chartable successes that the military tends to focus on.
0: Mm. Let's take another break when we come back. um, I'm sure people are wondering when am I going to ask about General Mattis, and so yeah. I'll ask about General Mattis right. after this this break. Uh, you, I don't know you you know him. I do. Right. I don't know how how you characterize that a friend. Oh, or,
1: absolutely a friend. Yeah. Okay, I, absolutely a friend.
0: Uh, and of course, uh, General Mattis, until recently, was in the the, the Trump administration. So uh we'll uh, we'll talk about general mattis and i I want to talk kind of bring this to an end uh, at the end of the conversation inevitably the us will leave wherever it is mm-hmm. and uh how best to prepare for for when that happens. Uh, More with uh, Jeannie Johnson. She is, after the break, she is uh, assistant professor of political science at uh, Utah State University and is uh, out with a uh, new book. It's called uh, The Marines, Counterinsurgency and Strategic Culture. More following this. My mom, she would test out theories like uh, preventing my five-year-old brother from becoming a pyromaniac by giving him lots of matches the light until he got tired that did not work out well
1: join us for true stories of science from astronauts to aquanauts next time on the moth radio hour from prx
0: saturday evening at six on utah public radio
1: join utah public radio and kcpw's jazz time host steve williams for our summer concert series, he'll be there introducing our performances by Ryan Conger Trio and the Blue Blazers Band on the beautiful site of the vineyards at Mount Naomi Farm. July 28th. See you there. Ticket information at UPR.org. I don't want to see nobody but you. I don't
0: want to see nobody. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we've reached our last segment. I have about six or seven minutes left with Jeannie Johnson. Uh, she is Associate Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. During the break, you inform me of your recent uh, promotion. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, And Associate Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. We're talking about uh, her new book out from uh, Georgetown University Press. It's called uh, The Marines, Counterinsurgency and Strategic uh, Culture. Uh, Jeanne Johnson, the foreword here is by General Mm -hmm. James Mattis. Sure is. You you know General Mattis. Tell us, uh, until recently, um, the uh, Secretary of Defense.
1: He was, yep.
0: There's a political overlay here. There is, um, you know, I, I'm sure Marine Corps General. He just wants to run the Defense Department, and but the and I don't know. It's probably pretty distracting. I don't know if you've talked about this with him, but he was seen by Trump opponents. He was seen yes. as the grown-up in the room and, mm-hmm. and and the great hope.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> in yeah. in
0: the end, he on his way out, he was, kind of came out in the open a clash with President Trump. But
1: oh, absolutely. Uh, well, the first thing that. I think it's important is to understand uh, a little bit about his character and understand how that character is reflected of some of the best attributes of the Marine Corps. So one of the things that um, Jim Mattis insists on when he is given high praise, he's absolutely a cult icon within the Marine Corps, as you likely know, is that he is an average Marine. You know, he'll sort of pound that and then he'll follow it with saying, but that's a high compliment. Mm-hmm. You know, the, an average Marine is a high compliment. So so I first met him when I was going to defend my uh, my dissertation in the U.K., uh, and I was dragging a suitcase around that was way too big, and it had four copies of my enormous dissertation in it, and I was disoriented because I was jet-lagged, and I couldn't find my hotel because, actually, the hotel name had switched um, since I was given instructions about where to go. And it was for a wonderful conference to commemorate the career of Colin Gray. That's, so I was doing both, defending dissertation and going to that conference. And here's this man standing by himself in the road and uh, said, do you need some help? And he looked familiar in that kind of out of context way, you know, where you think you look familiar, but you're so tired and focused on your own things, you're not uh, recognizing really who it is. So he's carrying this enormous suitcase of mine upstairs because the (laughs) elevator's broken before I decide to introduce myself and said to him, by the way, hello, you know, I'm Jeannie Johnson. He said, well, hello, Jim Mattis and stuck (laughs) out his hand, at which point, you know, I nearly fell off the stairs. Like, are you kidding me, General Mattis? Um, because although I hadn't seen very many photos of him, my my research at that point had ended with the Vietnam War. So you know, having my nose buried in books up through Vietnam, um, I was well aware of his very famous quotes, which you can find online. But I I hadn't really seen very many pictures of him. So so I'm sort of flipping out, and he's telling me to come down. He's like, General Mattis. He's like, it's just Jim. It's just Jim. <laughs> I said, well, you will never be just Jim, you're General Mattis. And from there, we struck up a friendship. But his actions that day of um, looking for how he can help, carrying the suitcase of this person he doesn't even know up the stairs, are indicative of a larger Marine Corps culture. So whenever I'm on base at Quantico or um, anytime in Marine circles, they have a very strong service orientation. And I attribute this um, to many things, but one of them is in the Marine Corps, officers eat last. So the least of these my brethren eat first, right? The privates and... um Corporals, Lance Corporals eat first and the officers eat last. And sometimes that means they eat a lot of solid sandwiches because the meat is all gone by the time they get up to the table. So the service orientation of leadership um, shines through uh, Jim Mattis. And any who have met him pick up on that immediately. He was good enough to meet with um, my students for an hour and a half in the Pentagon in the secretary's office. And when we walked in, this was um, just a month before he resigned. When we walked in, he had uh, asked for bios on every single student and had made a name placard for each student and was seating them at the table where he meets heads of state and dignitaries from um, from elsewhere. So, you know, they were already floating off the ground. And I'm sort of looking for my name on the table. And he looks at me and he says, Miss Jeannie, you're back here. You know, like, <laughs> this is about the students today. So the rest of us just sat against the wall. And he had this wonderful hour and a half with the students. So that um, servant leadership orientation really permeates all that he does and I think is one of the things that certainly pit uh, him at odds with the president by the end of his tenure. It was always going to be um, a rough union. The two men are built very differently with extraordinarily different outlooks. Uh, On the world, especially where alliances are concerned and um, the necessity of those alliances and our approach and gratitude to other countries uh, for the, the many times that they have stood with us and backed our policies. And as you know from his resignation letter, that is eventually the issue that became intolerable for him. The president's treatment of other world leaders and other nations, especially those that are currently actively shedding their blood on our behalf in Afghanistan.
0: Mm-hmm. And we'll have to leave it there. The, the, the question I posed before the break about uh, when we leave, you'll have to go to the book, uh, I guess, to, right. to, for more, more answers on that. Uh, it's been a fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, thank you so much. The the book is uh, The Marines, Counterinsurgency and Strategic Culture. It's out from Georgetown University. The author is Jeannie Johnson, Associate Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.
1: What makes a sin? deadly envy i think is my favorite sin there's something
0: so imaginative about it pride leads to a lot of problems greed is being a sociopath but with lust who doesn't feel lust for life and how can we tell someone not to feel
1: lust i'm guy roz the seven deadly sins that's next time on the ted radio hour from npr
0: sunday afternoon at two on utah public radio
1: This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernals, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.